Well, hey there. Welcome to Just to Be Nominated, a podcast about movies that is distributed by Lee Enterprises. The show is hosted by Bruce Miller, an entertainment reporter from multiple decades, who is currently the editor of the Sioux City Journal, Jared McNett, a reporter for the Sioux City Journal, and me, Chris Lake, the podcast operations manager for Lee. For this week's show, we are all caught up with Last Night in Soho, the new nostalgia horror genre pastiche from Edgar Wright. We drank from the cosmological fire hose that is Marvel's The Eternals. We put on our fancy pants to contemplate Kristen Stewart's Oscar odds with the Princess Diana biopic Spencer. And we took a quick shot at the new Netflix Western, The Harder They Fall. For our staff picks, we took a page from the new post-apocalypse Tom Hanks movie, Finch, which premieres on Apple TV Plus today. And we rounded up some of our favorite dystopias with a brief aside to rank the Mad Max movies. Then finally, we take a look at the latest movie news. You can find links to all the movies that we talk about in the show notes, along with links to our social media, etc., to see what we're up to and or contact us if you wanna to sound off in our DMs. If you like the show, please tell your movie-loving friends and let us know what you think in the review section of the show wherever you get your podcasts. Just a quick note for listeners, uh, the audio starts in the middle of a conversation where Chris, me, uh, is talking with Jared and Bruce about having seen two movies back-to-back, Last Night in Soho, followed by The Eternals, uh, the day before we recorded. It all becomes clear as the conversation moves forward, but figured it was worth mentioning up top before we jumped right into the middle of it. And now, here it is. Our show kicks off after this short pause. There's a boxing gym around the corner from <laughs> from the theater, like in the mall. It's just weird to see like that where, uh, you know, like a jewelry store used to be. So you go in and box while you're shopping? Yeah. I guess, I mean, it's sort of like a, like, like a fitness, you know, setup, whatever. It's like a, basically only for boxing. They've got heavy bags and little rings set up on the floor, you know, for you to go train. It looks like a little back room where you can change. I guess, I mean, it's, it's really bare bones, but it's in a mall. Like, like the second that you walk out of the, the boxing thing, you're like staring at the, you know, what dollar for five minute, you know, massage chairs. <laughs> All the best uh, fighters trained at uh, mall gyms. Don't you know that? It's true. Uh, do you remember that scene in uh, in Raging Bull when uh, Jake LaMotta, after he gets done uh, beating his wife, he goes and gets an orange Julius, and then he goes and trains at the uh, at the mall. That's where you go. A special cheat day slice of Sparrow. <laughs> yep, exactly, yeah. <laughs> so then did you do a few rounds between movies or not? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, took 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 a few turns in the speed bag. Good. It was a, it was enjoyable. But that was a long day. If you watch two movies, especially one that's almost three hours long. Yeah, that one started at seven. That one started at seven. So I wrapped up around like I think I got out of there because you got to stay for the end credits all the way down to the end, plus the trailers and whatever. Um, I wrapped up a little after ten. And, and did, they, did they have end credits? Were there ones? There are two stingers, um, one in the middle and one at the end. And I mean, I'm not going to spoil either of those because those are, you know, laying a lot of track. But yeah, I mean, it seems like, I mean, clearly the Eternals are coming back. That was one of the little tagline at the end of the first stinger was the Eternals will return. Well, how boring was it? I heard that it was a boring version of a Marvel film. So it's it's more strange than boring. It's certainly, I mean, I boring is not a word that I would use to describe it. It was it was a lot more fun than I expected it to be, but I went in expecting it to not be a lot of fun to begin with. Um, like I said, I just throw out, I mean, we've got uh, Jared Bignett and Bruce Miller in out in Sioux City. Bruce Miller's the one asking about the the boredom quotient, uh, and Jared is the one with expert knowledge on Raging Bull and his uh, food court preferences. <laughs> so it's not boring. Nope, 
not boring. It is very pretty. Does it seem too long though? It's a long movie. I mean, Bruce, I think you you would certainly take issue with, with the length of it maybe, but I don't really know what I'd cut. I mean, it's, uh, it's definitely... The way that I walked out of the movie thinking was like, imagine if... Like if, if each of the previous Marvel films was a, a story in the Bible and collectively you get the Old and New Testament, but it takes, it's, it's a lot, you know, for you to kind of like slowly piece together the whole cosmology. And then the Eternals basically takes the, what are like, like the books that aren't in the Bible, but like were at some point. The Apocrypha. The Apocrypha. It's like the... The Eternals takes every single book of the Apocrypha and tries to cram it all into one movie. And it's a huge bite that takes a, a while to chew on. <laughs> uh, and, and as such, there, there are a lot of plot elements where, um, you know, it certainly stretches the, maybe not necessarily a suspension of disbelief, but more a you're just going to kind of tell me that this is the way it is and we're just going to move on from that like there, there's not a lot of deeper explanation for things uh and it mostly works and generally it was it was really good but i think it's it's going to stick out in once there's a handful of other movies coming out afterwards to kind of put it in greater context within the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, I was talking with a good friend of mine and who saw it last night as well. And um, we both compared it to Age of Ultron in that it's not a movie that we are really necessarily excited to ever go back to, but it introduces a lot of elements that are going to have impacts in the larger cinematic universe down the line like age of ultron introduced the elements that laid the the groundwork for civil war it introduced and uh elaborated on scarlet witch and quicksilver and all of these other elements um but as a film age of ultron is not a lot of fun <laughs> so who's the best new character out of the bunch droog maybe kingo i think kingo yeah, Kingo, uh, as played by Kumail Nanjiani. I don't want to say too much about his character because there's, it was very unexpected, the the kind of backstory that he gets in how he's established himself in India. Um, and he's certainly the most fun. Druig, man, dour, just, just a real... Just a sour patch kid of a character. That's Barry Kewen's character, right? Yep. Barry Kewen needs a new haircut, man. That haircut. <laughs> it's rough. I don't like commenting on like people's, you know, looks or whatever, but like his his face is it's like it's like a bowl of oatmeal, like viewed from above. Like there's I don't know what it is. It's just kind of flat and gray and featureless. He's my brother. <laughs> I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist. I had to tell him the the gauntlet's thrown down. He can come. He can come meet me at the house on the rock, and we'll sure. <laughs> we'll, we'll have a fight in the parking lot. <laughs> okay, so on uh, on a scale of four stars, where does this one drop? I would say probably two stars, but there's a lot of caveats. I could see that that number go up as they further develop the characters and incorporate them into the larger mythology. I would not give it less than two stars under any circumstances, um, but it has, it has room to, to improve. The last time I checked on Rotten Tomatoes, this is like the first Marvel movie that's gotten a rotten score. So Two stars sounds about right based on what other people have been saying too. I would certainly rate it higher than a handful of other 
Marvel movies. Uh, I think the the rotten score is interesting. I, I don't know if that's people that were expecting more from Chloe Zhao or if they were expecting for this incredibly co- complex cosmological deep you know celestial origin story with i think you know eight or nine depending on how many you want to look at it characters that all have to be developed uh over the course of three hours i remember very early on they were trying to sell this as like a prestige movie that just happened to be like a comic book movie and like they were trying to make comparisons like terrence malick movies and stuff like that and when that's your opening like gambit on what your movie is going for, people are not going to be as kind when it finally actually does <laughs> come out. Yeah. I think, yeah, they, they, they definitely set it up a little bit poorly if people are going in expecting that so that yeah. when, when people come in expecting, and I mean, like I said, there, there are some gorgeous, uh, you know, landscape photography and, <clears throat> you know, the, the actual locations that they shot in are, amazing i mean it is it is a gorgeous gorgeous film in in ways that marvel movies have not been since forever um but it still is it's it's a marvel movie it's you know something where no matter how minded you want to to be about it it still devolves into people with superpowers and and those superpowers basically allow them to either you know shoot lasers out of their eyes or punch people in the face and that's you know i mean there's only there's only so so high-minded you can get about that <laughs> is swanky in it swanky from nomadland did chloe put in some of her old friends from nomadland are they all oh. running around in a van at some point <laughs> i wish if, if they if, if they were in the background i missed them um so don't know okay so if i had a choice is this my top choice this week no it's not i mean it's one where the people that are already converts are going to be there (laughs) they've already been there yeah they saw it yesterday exactly they saw it yesterday or they have tickets to see it today because the showings yesterday sold out or whatever people that are you know on the hook i mean this this is not a movie I don't think that is going to win converts. It is it, it's a horrible starting point despite the fact that timeline-wise it goes back further than any of them. Isn't one of them basically responsible for Hiroshima and Nagasaki? So that was a little bit overplayed in the press. Okay. Basically, it is a clunky scene. Do not get yeah, me wrong. The idea of bringing not great. No, it's a strange thing that feels very out of place. But basically, one of the Eternals is maybe not in charge of, but one of the things he does is introduce technological advancements to humanity. And he ends up seeing the, the A-bomb as a, an extension of that. And so I, I, don't, I don't think that it is you know, said that he gave them the bomb, but it's a natural evolution from the, you know, industrial revolution up to, you know, atomic technology. Um, And so the role that he plays in that, he feels a a level of complicity, uh, if not, you know, outright. And so, but yeah, it's a, it's very clunky. And strange and there's also a big ballyhoo about like uh it having the first marvel sex scene which is is also really trumped up because it's i mean there's nothing really sexy about it it's you know <laughs> two characters without their shirts on kind of rolling around in the sand and a little bit you know for for a little bit and that's that's kind of the uh <laughs> well i also saw a uh, a superhero uh movie this week speak on it king on Wednesday night, I went to the uh, uh, another mall movie theater, but here in uh, in Sioux City, and I uh, I got gooped. I went and saw uh, Let There Be Carnage, the the newer uh, Venom movie, and it was an absolute delight. I'm glad I went and saw it. it it's so 
goofy and just it's a great buddy comedy with a lot of homoerotic over actually they're not even overtones or undertones like there's just a lot of homoerotic stuff that happens in venom let there be carnage (laughs) yeah yeah how much did you know about it going in had you caught random like twitter spoiler type things uh not that many no other than like seeing pictures of uh venom with glow sticks around his neck at like a underground rave yeah that that sequence that that you're describing is one that was i think spoiled for me when someone was just describing how bonkers the film is <laughs> and yeah yeah at- at at that at that rave in that in that scene he says like verbatim a line of dialogue is venom saying i'm coming out of the eddie closet <laughs> that's a line and then at another point when uh venom is making breakfast for eddie and like causing a mess he's making eggs at one point and putting ketchup on the eggs and the ketchup just explodes out of the bottle all over eddie <laughs> So Venom, Let There Be Carnage, a movie with no sex scenes, ends up being far more sexual than the new Eternals movie, apparently. Yeah, which has a sex scene. Also has uh, the first, I think Endgame had the first like openly gay character. It was a like like a support group, like a post blip support group. And one of the characters is, I mean, it's it's not even like a, like a main character, just somebody some guy is talking about like him and his partner and then, you know, names the partner like Clive or Chad or something like that. And so it's, it's so passive, but Eternals has a, you know, homosexual kiss. Uh, And I mean, it's a, it's a very openly queer film, I think in, in that respect, but in a way that it's, it's pretty casual about it, which is how it should be. But they could do it in 90 minutes, too. They don't need to have three hours. (laughs) Bruce Carnage does it in 90 minutes. That movie's only like 93 minutes. Then it's a better film. Just a mere idea. Because you look at those old classics. They were short. They were able to get two of them in in a night, and people were feeling like they got a lot for their money. And these kind of bloated uh, action films that really could use one less car chase, one less... A fight, one less whatever, could be a lot better, and you would get new people into the tent. They're just not coming into the tent because you think, oh God, it's that. <laughs> and they should cut the end credit things too. It's time. They can't. Yeah, they can. They, they could do that and say we're we're going to do something new. We're starting a new direction. They have new people now. The end credits is where they establish future films right but here's what they do they probably lowball all those people who are listed in the credits by saying people are going to see your name so we're not going to pay you as much so just be ready and then they throw those things in and they're like they're eating shawarma this is the big thing that we're <laughs> going to sit around here waiting for no you know you could, uh, I, you could just have the normal credits and then just say hey go to go to wikipedia we'll tell you what's what's in the do what's, like what's the rest next. of us We'll look at it tomorrow online because it'll be there. The two end credits things for Eternals. This is the last I'll say about Eternals. Um, but the two end credit things were enjoyable. And both of them lay very separate lines of narrative track into other areas. Uh, but I think it'll be... Neither of them, I think, are in, in directions that anyone is really... like don't necessarily tie into films that they have announced or put on their release schedule yet. So I don't know how long the payoff is going to be for those end credits things. Um, the idea of an Eternals 2 sequel is kind of, it's, it's not that it's up in the air, but it's, I don't know what it's going to look like in the same way that um, like the, the Captain Marvel sequel quote unquote is going to involve it's I think like, it's what the like Ms. Marvel or Captain Marvel's plural. So it's, I don't know if that's like a sequel or, I mean, they're all just, everything's just kind of a sequel to whatever movie came out before that in the timeline, not necessarily a sequel to that film at this point in the, in the Marvel universe. So I like them. I mean, as long as it's, it's something that you, you see in the theater on opening night with a bunch of other diehard weirdos who all kind of, you know, can get excited about, 
uh, an off-screen voice and be like, oh, who's that? Is that that Samuel Jackson? Is that is that Carol Danvers? Like, what's the huh? Is that Thanos? Bruce, you were going to say something. I didn't mean well, to. You said that you meant you saw the other film, and I saw that film too last I night. I was going to ask you. So yeah, so we all at some point over the past seven days saw One Night in Soho or Last Night in Soho. Yep, it was a good film for about two thirds of the way, and then it becomes just an old horror film. That's what I thought. The thing that I was thinking is that obviously one of the like main riffs that it's going on in particular is like giallo movies from the seventies, like the Italian stuff where it's like, there's like a murder mystery and stuff like that. My problem was, is that if that's the kind of thing that you're going to be aping, you honestly need to go a little bit more like sicko mode with it than like the movie actually does. It's not that like, grisly of a movie for like the kinds of movies it's trying to be which then just left me kind of it was okay by the end like that was kind of my feeling to add a little bit of context this is last night in soho it's the new edgar wright film it is as jared said very giallo rooted in in the colors in a lot of the you know plot structure elements of hey it's a, a girl going to college or some elite school <laughs> um i'm thinking of i mean i don't know it seems like half of the giallo films are always about like some teenager going to a ballet school or something like that um and and for what it's worth a lot of those movies there are people getting like their heads caved in there oh, yeah. are people getting like cut up and but it's always against a backdrop of like very suave and sophisticated kind of stuff which last night in soho does have that part of it down i would say yeah i think m- one of my absolute favorites i think it's in the uh the argento suspiria where there's just a room full of barbed wire that someone gets thrown into and it's just like i mean that is the most simple and elegant yet also horrific (laughs) visual um yeah and it's a girl who can i guess kind of see ghosts that's pretty much established in in the first scene or might be having a, a mental uh you know slow mental collapse um, and falls in love with the Soho district of London and all of the historical elements and starts connecting to the past. This one specific storyline from the past and it kind of bleeds over into real life. She should have stayed in her dorm room. That was her big problem. And she decides that I don't want to be with these dorm people because they're partying too much. So I'm going to go rent my own place. So she goes to this place that God knows what's in it. And this old creepy lady that's running the place uh, says she can have this room upstairs, which just might have some past history. We'll see what happens here. And then she has these bad dreams. I would have worried about the mattress personally to see if that was clean. And, um, she ventures back in the 60s and she's with this Sandy that is kind of her muse, if you will. And Sandy has cool clothes um, and she uh, wants to be a singer, but it's the 60s. So if you want to be a singer, you got to do some other things to be able to get there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I like the idea that they were trying to trick you with who you're looking at at any given time. I thought that was a very good kind of move on his part. And when she dyes her hair to even look more like her, I was like going, who is this? Which one is this? And I love that. I thought that was a good way of kind of making me feel off off base so that I too felt like, you know, this could be happening. This could be the situation we're in. Um, It reminded me a lot of those movies back in the 60s. Sorry, kids, I'm so old. Um, that would star like Judy Geeson or Petula Clark or any of those ones that were kind of like, oh, oh, what's her name? She's the, uh, she was in To Serve With Love and she sang the the song, um, Lulu. So it's very much, if you look at that movie, you could see they were stealing lots of things from that concept. And um, the clothes, I loved looking at those clothes again. It was very stylistic, Um, but yeah, I think it falls apart in the end. Yeah, I, I totally agree, Bruce, that the the breadcrumbs that are 
laid out to kind of point you towards certain characters of that's who this person is in the present day is this person in the past. And then definitely has, there's elements of the rug being pulled out and then the rug being pulled out from under that, that was layered in really, really well. And it's, this is the part that's kind of hard to talk about because I certainly don't want to ruin any, you know, plot twists or I feel like maybe even just saying that the movie knows that it is pointing you in these, you know, red herrings, you know, is, is maybe a little much for me to kind of throw out there, but I thought the, the effects in there for the first, like half of the film before you kind of see, you know, the, the seedier elements of, you know, mid sixties Soho, all of the, the mirror work and the camera transitions. I think I, I listened to an interview with Edgar Wright where they tried to do as much of that in camera as possible. And so many of the effects are seamless in, in a way where you don't really know, you know, what's going on. I mean, the camera is constantly moving. Technically it's, it's a, just an astounding work. The, the first, you know, chunk of it, I enjoyed it a whole lot more than it sounds like maybe either of you guys did, but it still feels like it is Edgar Wright needs to make more movies. I think that is the, that's my big takeaway to where it's not like every single movie he makes is an event where that is, you immediately compare it to every single movie that he's done before because you have that many films. It's not like, like, how does this stack up to the, the Cornetto trilogy? Or, you know, how does this stack up to, uh, you know, Baby Driver? He needs to go on like, like a real like Soderbergh tear and just start making a ton of movies. So that's, that's my take. I thought it was fantastic. Between that, like, I mean, yesterday I saw Soho and then I saw Eternals back to back. And both of them left me with a lot to think about and kind of chew on in very, very different ways. They're, they're both recommendable films, but for very different reasons. Spencer opens today. It's very interesting. Very, very, very interesting because you sense what Princess Diana was going through. You really get a, a feel for her life and how she was not really embraced by the royal family. She was clearly an outsider. And they would find little things to pick on, you know, like um, you're leaving the drapes open while you're dressing and all the paparazzi can look in and they can take pictures of you and they're doing that. So then you can see that she feels kind of like, well, now what do I do? I've got to cut close the drapes. I've got to keep that. So she's even more isolated. And um, she has nobody that she can turn to because one of the people she relies on, they reassign her to another place. So, and then they, they tell her that here are all the people who are in the, in the castle are talking about you. And so you can't do anything because they will report this to somebody else. They're far too worried about what other people think. That's what it is. And poor Diana, she's got this rack of dresses she's got to change into every, you know, she's got like six things she's got to wear in one day. And you think, I see what this world was like and I don't like it. But you don't also get to see her with her sons. And that's a cool thing. How much of this is true? Who knows? It's, um, but it's a very good slice of what that must have been like. And Kristen Stewart, wow. I'm surprised that she can do this well. She really makes you believe she has the gestures down. She has the voice down. She makes you think she is Diana and far better than anything. Uh, you know, uh, as much as it was at Emma Corrin that was on um, The Crown, she far better, far better. Yeah, and I do think that she's the leading contender for best actress this year because she's just so, so believable in this role. And who else, but Diana, everybody knew who she was. We saw so many things about her. And this gives you that just that little bit more. Um, the thing only takes place over a couple of days. So it's, it's at Christmas time. And it's not like you're getting, you know, oh, a whole biography of her. No, 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 no. It's a slice of life. And you see where she was happy and where she wasn't happy. And the other characters just kind of fade in and out. How does it compare to Pablo Lorraine's other films? Because I know he also directed 
Did he do Jackie? He did Jackie. Yeah, that, that, that's the one that's the most immediate comparison. Very similar. Where it's the, the biopic of Jackie Onassis starring Natalie Portman. Yeah. Which was great. It's very similar to that in that it's, you're not getting the whole schmear. You're getting parts of it. Um, and he's got another act, actress who, you know, just doubles down and does what he needs to do. There's still a Diana movie to be made, but this isn't it. But I do think her performance is what, what sells that film. You've talked about biopics in the past, specifically when we were talking about respect, where it does go everything. And you don't, I don't like that. I do think that a piece of it is good because then you can really kind of dive in and do what you need to do. But it's not, somebody doesn't have to act like they're 15 at some point and then they age to 30 and then they're suddenly 65 and you go, oh my God, such range. Um, it isn't necessary. It isn't necessary. But I do, to give you a sense of that person, I think it's a good deal. And I also saw another one that's coming out very shortly, Old Henry. Old Henry is Tim Blake Nelson. And it's a Western. It's just a plain old Western. And you think it's just very kind of typical. They've, there's this guy who's been shot. A farmer and his son bring the guy in, try to get him back to health. And then they realize that there are three guys that are out there trying to get him. And the three guys do come to the farm. And he tries to let them know, no, you're not going to get this guy. You're not doing this. The guy says he's a sheriff. But the guy who comes to the farm says he's a sheriff, too. So you think, now, who's lying here? And then this whole film spins into another direction where it's just fascinating about what could really be at play here. It's a, a Tim Blake Nelson is very good, very. But he has that look. He looks like he should be a farmer in the 1800s or whatever. Yeah. And you're doing interviews for that today, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'll talk to Tim and I think the director today. But this was fascinating, and particularly in light of something like Rust, which we've heard a lot about, where you go, huh, I thought Westerns were going to have a tough time, and now with the gun situation, what does this mean for us? But it's a good old-fashioned Western, and it, it moves like a house on fire, and it's 90 minutes. There you go. Interesting transition. I watched uh, The Harder They Fall, the new Western that's on Netflix, which is full of, I mean, incredible black actors. And it's sort of a revisionist Western, but I don't want to get like too much into that one other than to touch on, I mean, it was, it was fun. I had a great time with it, but the, the rust elements of, it was hard to not watch that and have the gunplay have this other added element to it and made the, the safety elements, I guess, just that much more forefront in, in my mind in a way that wasn't necessarily negative or positive, but it was just, uh, it, it was very difficult to separate that from the experience of watching that film. You're more aware of what's happening and you think, oh. Yeah. But in a, in a way that I'm sure the filmmakers did not intend, it, it's not the kind of thing that you want to have your mental focus or, or any, any mental energy spent on thinking about what it was like filming the movie while you're watching the movie. That, that's not necessarily the point, especially not when the, the reference that, that your mind is going to is one of, you know, uh, a really, you know, tragic event that happened in real life. So that was good. Bruce, I know that you also saw Finch. This is a, this is a big, big week for movies. We'll see if we get to the news. <laughs> And I, yeah, and I like, I liked Finch. I thought it was a, you know, it's one of those apocalyptic things where the world's ended and Tom Hanks is the last man standing and there he is with a robot and a dog. But Tom Hanks can sell it. I know that some think it's a little too either dark or it tries too hard to be sweet. What is, and the, I, what, what is the general plot? Um, the, there's been a solar kind of thing, flare, I don't know what you call them, but something happened that it wiped out most of the people on, on earth. Now he's a, a robotics, um, expert and he's been in kind of a bunker where he's been living for a number of years. He has a dog. The dog's name is Goodyear and he and the dog are, you know, so close, but he worries that what's going to happen to the dog because he knows that his days are numbered. He knows that he won't live long because he was exposed. The dog 
he feels needs to have somebody take care of him after he's gone. So the dog just doesn't wander and die. So he creates a robot, which the robot gets to choose his name and the name he chooses is Jeff and um, gradually teaches this robot how to be a caretaker for the dog. And it's very fascinating because he also takes on a personality and because he's he, like, he'll devour a world book encyclopedia. And then he has all that information at his disposal, but he doesn't know how to connect the dots. It's very much how, how do I use this information? And then because Finch tells all these stories about the past, he becomes kind of taken with all of this. And he says, oh, let's go to San Francisco because he learns how to drive. And he wants to take them to San Francisco so they can all see what Finch saw back when the days were good. It's a pre-COVID kind of thing. Um, but then you know that at some point Finch is gonna die, but will it work out? You know, will it be okay for the robot? Will it be okay for the dog? Who knows? And I, I was, again, it's not a long film, but it's a very heartfelt film. It was one of those ones that they choose every year, the best unproduced screenplay that- The Blacklist. Right, The Blacklist. And um, you can see people need to dig on that list a little more because it has ideas there that aren't just, oh God, it's, you know, we're stuck on Mars and we've got to figure out what to do and who do we care about? You know, George Clooney, all those other ones who've been somewhere where they're kind of all alone. Mm -hmm. This is different. And I think that if Tom Hanks had died before uh, the movie came out because it was filmed before COVID, it would be like, you would never have seen anything this great. You would say it's the ultimate performance by the ultimate actor of that time, if he had died. Now that's, that's the caveat to the whole thing because it captures so many things that he has done in the past. There's a little Forrest Gump, there's a little castaway. There's a little bit of a lot of the things that he's done. And he is good oper uh, operating opposite nothing. He can really bring emotion when you don't need it. He needs to do another Road to Perdition type of movie. That's like still the only movie where he's even remotely like a bad guy. And I love that movie. Yeah, he could. But he'll be one of those sneaky bad guys where you think he's okay. And then all of a sudden the movie turns and it's like, oh, you know, I, I wish I could name you five of them that are like that, but it's because they built a reputation as being a nice guy. They can be the easy bad guy. And it, it's a, a twist. So that's new stuff. On the topic of post-apocalyptic films. Staff picks. I got one in the chamber that uh, is a good uh, transition out of uh, our October uh, picks. Mine is going to be, because uh, I rewatched it for October, is uh, Day of the Dead by uh, George Romero from the 1980s, which uh, after rewatching that one and like being so familiar with well, all three of the, the original Dead movies, Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead, I actually honestly think that Day of the Dead might be my favorite of those three because... I think it's wrestling with the most ideas and maybe some of the biggest ideas of any of the three movies, because there is a lot in there about even compared to other zombie movies. I think, I think day of the dead compared to any other zombie movie does the best job of illustrating how thin the line is sometimes between like civilization and just absolute collapse. Because in day of the dead, they have this nice little society set up in this underground bunker and it does not take long at all for them to basically just descend into absolute hell. And of any of the day of the, or any of the living dead movies. And again, maybe compared to any other zombie movie, the effects in day of the dead are incredible. Like there are people being pulled apart while they're still alive. They're like <laughs> entrails galore. Some of the stuff in, in day of the dead is just like a practical effects, like, masterpiece pretty much that's the only way i can describe it so i was glad i rewatched that one all the uh the effects and makeup tom savini yes which honestly that's probably his best like effects work or very close to his best effects work i would say so yeah that that would be my uh post-apocalyptic pick because obviously that's in a uh zombie or post-zombie apocalypse so if you've never seen day of the dead it's a little easier to track down than uh dawn of the dead 
Um, so go and watch Day of the Dead. You want to go next, Bruce? I mean, that's a well, Day of the Dead's a fantastic pick, by the way. Mad Max, you can't go wrong with any of those Mad Max films are money right there, right? How would you still we can do a quick aside here? How would you rank them going from, from worst to best? Uh, the best one is the one, um, well, there's Road Warrior, Mad Max, Thunderdome, and then Furiosa. What was the one with, with Charlize Theron? That was the, um, yeah, Fury Road. That's the best. Yeah. Um, and I kind of like Thunderdome. Tina Turner. Yeah, Tina's the, I like Tina. Um, the original Mad Max. And then what was left? Um, well, Road Warrior was the first one. And then Mad Max was the second one. Yeah. And they're really, they're all, I mean, they're, they're three almost completely different films or like the four, you know, films are, are very different in, in what they're doing. Um, yeah, I agree. I think Fury Road is, is the top. I think Thunderdome definitely gets maligned more than it deserves, but it's also kind of the goofiest of all of them. <laughs> Um, and yeah, so my running would be, I think Fury Road, Mad Max, Road Warrior, and Thunderdome. Best or worst. Jared? I, Jared? I, I was going to say, I think, uh, my one and two would definitely obviously be Fury Road and then, uh, Road Warrior, just because that's by far the sparsest and most minimalist of any of those movies, which kind of makes sense for the the setting considering they're in this post-apocalyptic desert pretty much yeah i mean um, it, it's it's also the only one that has an extended saxophone solo yes that, like <laughs> one of the most insane sequences to ever be included in the mad max movie and, and like spiritually it even though like obviously the budgets were way different spiritually it probably has the most in common with like fury road just because both of those movies there's not a lot of plot in either one of them like Fury Road is basically just, you know, they race one way for an hour. Drive around. Race, they yeah. race back in the other direction for an hour. And the the plot in uh, Road Warrior is pretty sparse as well. So th that would be my second. And then Mad Max and probably Thunderdome last. But they're all really fantastic movies. Yeah. I'm really excited to see what happens with Furiosa, the, the one that's coming out. Because George Miller is, I mean, he's got to be, he's got to be heading towards what, like 90? I mean, he, he is an old man. He's my brother. <laughs> <laughs> He's got to do another Happy Feet movie first. Yeah, that gave him the, the money. And I think he got an Oscar for it too, didn't he? I think he won the Oscar. But okay, let me, can I throw you one post-apocalyptic one that I think is kind of fun, but it's not great at all? Let me, but I, let me, let me do mine because okay. I'm not going to let you snake me on, on, on it if, if this is my pick. My pick is this is the end oh yeah james franco with the sculptures enough yep yeah yep. uh directed by seth rogan and evan goldberg um it's a party at james franco's house where everyone kind of plays themselves and it's a a hangout movie as the the apocalypse kicks in and i mean elements of it have not aged well i'll be the first to say but as a a hangout movie it's uh it's 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 really far up there and it's it's totally ridiculous in that it folds in every single one of their friends also rihanna and you know for for some reason and um i won't give away the you know surprise cameo at the very end other than to say that that's probably the part that has not aged well <laughs> as is often the case by far the best in the movie is danny mcbride of course yeah Yep. Okay, the one I want to throw out there is Love and Monsters. Did you ever see that? I don't. Dylan O'Brien plays a, a kid who's got a girlfriend somewhere else, and he's stuck in this bunker where everybody is kind of partnered off, and he's like the odd man out. And it's like, this is what it would be like. We're stuck with people we really don't want to be with, but we don't dare leave the bunker. And yet he, he takes the risk because he wants to go see this girl. And it's funny, funnier than you think. And it's better than you might expect from something like that. But it's one, yeah, it's, it's, not on the, it's not a best list. It's just an interesting take because you'd say, 
this is more like what I would experience. I am not going to be like Matt Damon in The Martian. I'm not going to be able to, you know, jerry-rig everything and create my own ecosystem. And I would be stuck in a bunker where we have to eat the chili that somebody has made for five days and nobody would be my friend. And I'd be there trying to figure out what the hell do I do? Do I just sit here and like sleep or what? So I think it's more realistic in that respect. What you're describing made me think of Monsters the from 2010, the first film that Gareth Edwards did or one of his earlier films. I, I don't know if it was the his feature length debut or not, but uh, Scoot McNary is in that. Also, one of the great actor names, Scoot, Scoot McNary, low budget sci-fi apocalypse thing with monsters taking over. A lot of it takes place in a like a gas station, if I remember correctly. It's been a long, long time since I've seen it. But I'm as someone who went from that to doing Rogue One and Godzilla. That's a film that I, I, I need to crack open again. I haven't seen that in a while. And I also the um, Love and Monsters sounds great. It also looks like maybe coming out in 2020 was maybe bad timing. Right. And <laughs> kids would appreciate it. So if you're at home in the pandemic and you want to see something, a kid would relate to it. Really? Like how? So there's, there's yeah. no like gore or anything like yeah. that. Like what, what looks like the age? They've got scary kind of creatures that are outside. And I'm, I'm assuming that they're, you know, trying to remember back that the language wasn't probably all there. Maybe it was only a PG. I don't know, but PG 13. But it's funny, it's cute. And like I say, I think you can feel more like, yeah, this is where be where I would be in the in the course of all of that. JM always has a lot of news. Let's hear some. My news is uh, is very simple uh, this week, and uh, it's a it's a release one, so it's not the newsiest of news. But uh, if you didn't get a chance to see it in theaters, uh, Pig is now available on uh, DVD and uh, Blu-ray and also Redbox, and I'm I'm assuming it's going to be somewhere streaming pretty soon. Like um, I'm sure it's already on prime to like, you know, rent or whatever, but I got to think it's going to end up on somebody's streaming platform pretty soon. So if you haven't gone and seen uh, pig, you can, uh, you have no more excuses. It's streaming in Jared's home. Yes. Yeah. You, you come and you, you pay like a dollar and you can watch it anytime you want. If I'm, <laughs> Did you buy if it? If I'm yet? away, I'll just if I'm away, I'll just leave a key and you can go in and you can watch Pig and then you can leave again. Sounds good. We'll put the money on the counter. Yes. Yes. It was nominated, wasn't it, for um one of the it was at the Gotham Awards? It was nominated for Best Picture. Well, why did he get nominated? Uh Nick Cage? Yeah. That's a that's a good question because I would think they would want him to show up for something like that because I could see him showing up for those kind of awards. So, I don't know. Just too much hate out there, isn't it? It's just all that pig hate. <laughs> <laughs> Truffle lovers of uh, of the world unite. Yes. So, I don't really have any, any news to speak of other than, uh, you know, let's uh, crowbars up. Clink. <laughs> it's cool. The Home Alone house Lego set arrived the other day. Nice. I'm very excited for it, but also clearly that was uh, money uh, that was impulsively spent. <laughs> it's better than a drug habit, right? You know, I mean, it's true. It's true. This one definitely, it's, it's not going to leave any track marks. If you don't reward yourself, nobody will. Yep. Yeah. Bruce, did you have any news or did we? I have no news. I know nothing. I am wallowing in a world of for your consideration. Yep. Other than we have, I guess, the news that you've got, um, and I'll link to it in the uh, in the show notes and everything else, uh, is you had an interview with the Academy Awards yeah. Museum. The new, the new museum has a lot of really fun stuff, and I did write about it. You'll be able to see kind of the things that are on display, including Bruce the Shark. Bruce the Shark. My namesake. Yeah. And um, that whole thing, what a what a story that was. They It was like in a junk heap at Universal Studios. It used to be used for pictures. And then they just thought, yeah, we're done with it. It was the last existing uh, shark used in the Jaws movie. Now, considering that's the first blockbuster, 
uh, summer blockbuster that we've ever had. It deserved to be preserved. And it took a long time for them to actually bring it back to life. And the one that they do have on display, it greets you right away when you come into the entrance of the museum, um, is fascinating. If you go on different levels, you can look like it's chopping your head off. You can look like it's, you know, it's coming at you. Wherever you you take a picture, it's it's a cool little reminder of what the movies were all about. So yeah, Bruce is a big thing. Bruce is a big deal, but ET's there, R2D2's there, C3PO's there, the Shape of Water character guy is there. A lot of stuff is in that museum. And it's a chance for us to kind of see these icons from our past. Yeah. Fantastic. And, and you spoke with um Nat curator, Natalie Morris. Yeah. Yeah, and, he's one of the uh, curators there. Yeah, and I, you know, and I asked about collecting things because everybody's a collector. And she said that um, there are a lot of people in Hollywood who are big collectors, Steven Spielberg among them, um, who want to make sure that this is available to other people to see. So if you go to there, you might see Steven Spielberg's name on an item because he does collect big time. He owns Rosebud. And Rosebud is one of the first things you'll see, and that's from Citizen Kane. Um, when you get to, when you enter the museum spoiler Dorothy, warning spoiler warning rosebud it's yeah it's it's a sled it's okay <laughs> um and dorothy's ruby slippers it's one of the i think seven pairs that they had there are a lot out there a lot of fakes and that's a problem too is that everybody seems to think they have something that was used in a movie and it's not and so did they, uh, bruce did they have anything from the music man they, uh, not that I know of, no. But I, you know, I've seen all of that stuff because it is on display at Warner Brothers. If you go to Warner Brothers tour, at the end there is a museum, and they do have um, the drum that was used in the Music Man. There you go. Well, and Harold Hill's Harold Hill's suitcase too. Well, fantastic. So yeah, we'll uh, look for that. And Jared, you got a uh, you got any any words of wisdom to take us out with? Uh, well, it's no longer scary season anymore. Now it's, you know, a season of uh, giving and, and family and all that, uh, all that crap. Uh, so uh, this month, uh, see something, see something wholesome. There you go. It's a, it's a month see for wholesome, wholesome stuff. See something wholesome. And if you're going to see something wholesome, last night in Soho, not going to make that cut. No. <laughs> See something wholesome. Thank you guys so much uh, for your time and thank everyone who is listening and we'll see you next week. So that is the end of the episode. Make sure that you're subscribed so you won't miss out on next week's show when I am certain that we will have some thoughts on Ghostbusters Afterlife and Netflix's star-studded action flick, Red Notice. You can check the show notes for links to where you can stream all the movies that we talked about today and discover older episodes, as well as find a way to contact Bruce, Jared, and myself as well if you want. The show is produced by myself, Bruce, and Jared, and I'm the one who records and edits it. We hope that you enjoyed the show and are taking very good care of yourselves out there. As always, thank you so much for listening. 